We all wait in great anticipation for the opportunity when we with unveiled faces behold our King forevermore. Let us see Jesus in the scriptures as we stand to hear his word. Taken from Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 32 to the end. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and, and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. you. May be seated.
I invite you to pray with me at this time. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for John Mark, who wrote, inspired by your Holy Spirit, that we might see the real Jesus. Cause us through the eyes of your Holy Spirit and by your grace to see the crucified Christ afresh. As we journey on our lives, Father, may we seek your grace. May we seek your presence. May we seek your power. Forgive the sins of your people, especially this one who stands before you, for there are many. In Jesus' name, amen. At this point in Mark, this is the third and final time that Jesus has predicted his rejection, his death, and his resurrection. As he led his disciples up to Jerusalem, those who followed Jesus revealed their true commitment to him. What becomes apparent is that Mark wants us to see something very significant in this text. This section begins with chapter 8 and verse 22 with Jesus healing a blind man. And then we are now at this juncture before his passion. He is healing a blind man at the end of chapter 10. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 47, there's this pivotal verse that says, it is better that you take your eyes out if you don't see properly. And then Mark gives us another indicator as to what's going on. That's why I choose this title, The Cost of True Discipleship. Jesus asks Bartimaeus the same question that he asks John and James early on in this text. It's a diagnostic question. So someone as curious as me would wonder, well, what is it that Mark wants us to see in this text? Why is he putting all these clues in this text? And so I've come up with three points. The first one is that Total depravity means following Jesus through unexpected suffering. What Mark is doing in this gospel, I, I, I think in this particular part of the gospel, he, he wants us to see that the crucified Christ calls us to follow him, even into very hard and difficult places. Our ability to seek Christ for who he truly is, as well as our willingness to understand ourselves, will greatly influence our journey. This is what the gospel demands. And by grace through faith, this is what the gospel provides each one who believes. So what is the cost of true discipleship? Again, it starts with following Jesus through unexpected sufferings. In verse 32, Mark is describing Jesus' disciples as astonished and afraid. They knew what was going on in Jerusalem. They knew what awaited Jesus. But Jesus had this look about him that he was focused on going to the place where everything would come to an end. That's how the disciples are thinking. This discipleship that Jesus is calling these men to and calling you and me to is counterintuitive. 
And we see it in verses 32 through 34. Surrendering all control to a crucified Jesus is quite unnerving. But the gospel calls us to unexpected suffering as we follow the head. As Jesus follows the Father, he leads a procession to Jerusalem in our text. And this procession will end in his suffering, in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection from the dead. Notice he says in verse 33, he says, we are going, we are going to Jerusalem. It's not just me, it's we are going to Jerusalem. This is not a death march for Jesus. This procession is leading up to his finest hour. Jesus' willingness to go to Jerusalem and fulfill his mission was astonishing to these men who followed him. Subsequently, they began to experience unprecedented fear. I'll tell you something about fear. It tends to deafen us and it makes us blind to the truth. It motivates us to become self-serving. And in verse 35 through 37, we see what true discipleship is not. Ironically, as Jesus leads this procession closer to Jerusalem, the disciples do not draw closer to understanding Jesus. James and John approach Jesus and make an outrageous request. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. That's an outrageous statement. That's like praying for certain things to happen because you think you and God could control the, the, the result of your, your words or whatever you can muster. But Jesus accommodates them and then he asks them this question which reveals the conditions of their heart. What do you want me to do for you? I often wonder what my answer would be if Jesus were to ask me that. I have a grocery list of things that I want. What, what about your answer? If Jesus were to ask you, what is it you want me to do for you? Sadly, like the Pharisees, James and John desired the seat of honor. Fear moved these godly men to self-preservation. And you know what? Fear does that to all of us. God has given each of us a built-in mechanism to respond to fear. I have an unreliable account that we either fight, we flee, we hide, or some of us freeze. James and John responded to their fears by fighting, competing for position in Jesus' church. David Garland comments that James and John are not asking for the honor of being crucified with Jesus. What they really expect is a kingdom for themselves where they can impose their own will on others. These men wanted to be in control. Don't we all struggle with giving up control? Garland continues that James and John blindly wanted to replace the self-serving power structure of Rome 
with a self-serving power structure of their own making. Sadly, they were too blind to see the hidden dangers that the enemy sets before us to trap us in our selfish pursuits. Remember, along with Peter, these two brothers were Jesus' inner circle. You can imagine how Peter must have felt. No doubt he felt betrayed. Within a few days, this same Peter would question the, the rest of the disciples' loyalty to Jesus at the supper. And, and, and he will declare to Jesus that he would be the last man standing. Jesus, I know everything is going to, all the wheels are going to fall off, but trust me, Jesus, I'm there for you. Meanwhile, because of all the dysfunction going on among the disciples, Judas is planning and plotting on monetizing the situation. And he conspires with the chief priest to arrest Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We know the rest of the story. All of, the, of, of those who followed Jesus would abandon him out of fear for their own lives including Peter who publicly denied ever knowing Jesus three times. What a group of dysfunctional leaders. And then, you, and, then, and then you realize that Jesus prayed all night before he chose these men. And you go, Jesus, what were you thinking? Knowing me the way I do, I often ask the Lord, you, you sure you want me to do this? You know me, Lord. You really want me to do this? I told you one time I was here while living in Dallas and I was tasked to preach on love. And it was early Sunday morning and I coming over the bridge in West Dallas, snow and ice on the road. And it was about 6.30 in the morning. I wanted to be here early and drove slowly. And this person in the far left came over on the far right in the front of me and there's a traffic light at the stop at the end of the bridge, at the bottom of the bridge. And they had to stop, and I had to stop, and I'm sliding. And you know, the first thing came to my mind, man, I wish I had a six-shooter. I'd blow their tire out. And I was like, oh, oh, Lord, you want me to preach on love? <laughs> what, what is Jesus thinking to save us? Doesn't he know us? Doesn't he know these men? The truth is, we're no different from Peter, James, and John, and Judas, and the rest of them. We wrestle with fear every day, and fear always moves us to self-preservation. That's why all of our relationships are so prone to become dysfunctional. Fear will adversely affect all of our relationships. We're not immune from the consequences that the disciples experience. That's why our Savior is patient with his disciples of all generations. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So he pulls them aside again, and he's doing that today. He's pulling you aside by his Holy Spirit, and he's using this occasion in Mark 10 as a teaching moment. And so he teaches us what true discipleship really means. 
And so my second point is, true discipleship not only leads us through uh, uh, self, uh, through the unexpected trials, but it flows out of seeing the finished work of Christ. And this is verse 38 to 45 of this text. And, and there are two sub points to this second heading, which is one, Jesus is the means by which we become true disciples, and he's also the model by which we be by which we live out our discipleship. And so in verse 38, Jesus gives a gentle rebuke and, and he warns James and John of their ignorance. He says to them, you don't know what you're asking. They says, yes, we do. <laughs> and, then, and then he asks them another probing question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? <laughs> and guess what they said? Yes, we can. The answers revealed how deaf and blind they had become. Even after witnessing all of the mighty miracles that Jesus had performed for over three years before their very eyes, even after hearing the very God of God preach, you know, one of, one of the things you, you folk at PCPC dubbed me is that, you know, some people say, I have the voice of God. Listen, Jesus is the voice of God. They had the voice of God for three years preaching to them. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snacks in between. <laughs> Yet look at them. My friends, we are saved by grace alone. And we are to live by grace alone. If any one of us thinks he stands, take heed, you will soon fall. And so Jesus explains to these spiritually blind men that they and all who are in union with Christ will drink the cup of God's wrath and will undergo God's divine judgment at the cross. He says it in verse 39. And then Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, explicitly states in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And, through our, and so through our union with Christ, we have this new life that is now under the control of the Holy Spirit. We are now true disciples. But unbeknown to the disciples, Jesus will spend his finest hour enduring the horrors of capital punishment as an enemy of Rome. He was nailed to a cross and hung there between two other criminals and was made a public spectacle. There on Golgotha's hill, our Savior suffered the most gruesome form of death in first century Israel. Why was this Jesus' finest hour? Listen to how Isaiah the prophet described Jesus' atoning sacrifice 700 years before it occurred. Chapter 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
but he was, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. We are forgiven because he was forsaken. We're accepted because he was condemned. Jesus paid the ultimate price that guarantees the freedom of his people who are fast bound by sin and nature's might. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus became our substitute and he suffered the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. Oh, I walk around singing almost every day of my life the chorus of the song, Jesus paid it all. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt, who raised this life up from the dead. He's not only the means of our discipleship, he becomes the model. And we see this in verse 41 to 45. Notice how the rest of the disciples responded to Jesus' statement to James and John. They became angry at the brothers of thunder. You know, truth be told, there's a desire for greatness in all of us. Yet Jesus' statement in verse 42 of this text is counterintuitive. If you want to be great, we know. You study hard, you work hard. I mean, how do you get to, how do you get to Broadway? You practice, practice, practice. How do, you, how do you get to the top of your class? You study, 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 study. And Jesus comes along and says, hey, you want to be great? You be the least. You want to, you want to be the servant? You want, to, you want to be served? You become the slave. It's counterintuitive. And he's saying that the way to true greatness is unnatural to us. It is the way of humility. That's why he gave these words to the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. And he tells the folks at Philippi, and he tells you and me, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but was found in the fashion as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. The crucified Jesus redefines what true greatness means and he rejects any attempts to include pagan systems of dominance and division into his church. A self-sacrificing savior will never allow self-seeking among his people. And so he sets himself as the standard for true discipleship. And he says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. My third and final point is found in verse 46 to 52. And that is this. True discipleship demands our unconditional surrender. We, we meet, we are introduced to Bartimaeus. He is helpless. He's alone. 
he's blind. This is a true picture of the human spiritual condition. This man heard that it was Jesus. You remember, faith comes by hearing. And so he shouted above the noise of the crowd, Jesus, son of David. He didn't say son of man. Throughout this, this, this gospel, Mark has been addressing Jesus as son of man, this, this, this motif that comes from the book of Daniel. But he says son of David, and this is the only time in Mark that this title is used, son of David. And son of David captures Jesus' complete state as fully God and fully man and is the most common Jewish title for the Messiah. And by God's grace, this blind man knew this. He knew that it was the Messiah. He saw the real Jesus through the eyes of faith. In the typical cry of the afflicted, he publicly begs Jesus for mercy. He's influenced by the theology of his day. He must have felt that he was cursed by God because he was blind. And we see this in John chapter 9 with the man born blind. They said, Jesus, who sinned? Was it him or was it parents? The common thought was that if you're sick, if there's something wrong with you, then, then, then there's something wrong with you spiritually. And Jesus says, no, it wasn't him nor his parents. This has happened so that the Lord may be glorified. And so Mark writes chapter 10 so that the Lord may be glorified in and through the witness of blind Bartimaeus. He knew he needed God's mercy. He knew that he was a sinner. Do you know this about yourself? And so Jesus calls Bartimaeus unto himself and he asks him the same question that he asks the sons of thunder. What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus' answer revealed the transformed heart of one who was made willing and able to repent. His desire was simple. He said, I just want to see. I just want to see Jesus. While James and John were motivated by selfish pride, this blind man was motivated by brokenness. Unlike James and John, who harbored delusions of powerful positions in the kingdom of God, this man knew he deserved nothing from Jesus. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless come I thee for grace. Jesus told him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And what's interesting, again, another thing that Mark does is <clears throat> in this verse, he doesn't use the verb therapeutic, which means to heal. This man wanted healing, but Jesus saw beyond and, and Jesus, gave him, Jesus gave him everything he will ever need for the rest of his life. Mark uses the, the verb sozo, which literally means your faith has saved you. So the fact that Bartimaeus was able to see indicated that he regained, that he was healed. 
But his salvation is seen in the fact that unlike the rich young ruler early on in chapter 10, who walked away from Jesus with all his possessions, Bartimaeus threw off his cloak, left everything behind, and followed Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. I believe he witnessed Jesus' triumphal entry on a donkey, as well as the unjust trial of our Savior. He must have followed Jesus to the place where our Savior was beaten mercilessly and then followed him all the way to Golgotha, where he witnessed the horror of Roman crucifixion on full display. We can be certain that Bartimaeus witnessed the, the message of Jesus' resurrection and maybe even the resurrected Lord himself. That's why his name is in this book. I could hear him singing even now, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. Like Bartimaeus, my friends, we are totally depraved. We are enemies of God. You don't believe me? Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. Paul says, the carnal mind is at enmity with God. He writes in Ephesians chapter 2 and, and verse 3, he says, he, he speaks about how our nature before Christ came. He says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's our estate before Christ came. Before Christ came, we hated God. We set up opposition against God in everything we did. And so as God calls us to himself, he demands complete surrender. And to surrender total control to a crucified Jesus is unnerving. His agony and death are causes for great fear. I must admit that following Jesus is very costly, and you know this. If you've lived longer than 50 years on this earth, you know that it is very costly. And so I salute those of you who are way beyond 60. I, I, believe, I salute those of you who have served in the military, who serve in protecting these people. You know it's costly to be a Christian under, under great and intense pressure. It's very costly. However, we are called to faithfulness even while experiencing unexpected suffering. Jesus' brother James, his younger brother James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Lord knows what he's doing in your life. And so we take up our crosses daily and we die to our natural way of life. We die to our natural way of thinking. We follow Jesus because we know deep down that he knows the way. We know this. 
I've had the privilege of sitting uh, for, for a week with my wife years ago under the, under, the, under the ministry of a Christian counselor by the name of uh, Dr. Diane Langberg. And she says that the Savior invites you into his school so that he could make you holy. That's why we are suffering. He's not inviting you into a place he refused to go. He has been there before us following his head. As we follow the Savior along the road of unexpected suffering, I urge you to fix our eyes, our spiritual eyes on Jesus and gaze upon his unbelievable sacrifice on the cross. The Father will conform you and me into the image of his dear Son. And it all begins with our willingness to declare our unconditional surrender to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords even the son of David. May the Holy Spirit open the eyes of our hearts that we may truly see Jesus for who he is. May the Holy Spirit encourage us to relinquish our way of looking at things and follow Jesus all the way to future glory. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for this story in, in the Gospel of Mark. I thank you for the, the leading of your son, Jesus, the many dangerous toils and snares we are going through, confident that we will overcome in his great strength. Bless your people gathered before you today, especially those who may be on the verge of giving up. Trials are come to make us better, but sometimes it makes it make us bitter. Deliver us from evil. Cause us to know Jesus. In his great name we pray. Amen.